Onasu. So this morning, of course, we'll return to mindfulness of breathing, this time the classic Theravada approach, taught really quite definitively by, uh, or compiled, I should say, by Buddhaghosa, because once again, Buddhaghosa is not presented historically as a great meditative adept, a person like a Tsongkhapa or a Sakyapandita or a Milarepa and so forth. He may have been, I don't know. But what he's presented as, how he's known historically, is a tremendous compiler, like, a, yeah, well, I won't give analogies, but just a tremendous compiler of the insights and so forth for roughly the, like the first thousand years of, of Buddhism in the, Ter- in the Theravada lineage. So I believe he's done a tremendous service. And in his explanation of mindfulness of breathing, he, he of course, then presents, uh, teaches it as focusing on the sensations at the apertures of the nostrils. The Buddha never went that specific. So we're relying now not explicitly or solely on the teachings of the Buddha, but on this continuum of a thousand years of meditators having very deep, very deep insights. And so this is where refuge in Sangha comes in. And that is that if one has confidence in the Buddha, very good, and Dharma also. But Sangha, refuge or confidence, faith in the Sangha, implies also that we, you know, a conclusion or a working hypothesis that the Buddha wasn't the only one that had enlightenment, but there were many other adepts who achieved stream entry, once returner, and so forth, right onto arhatship, and that we can learn from them as well. And I firmly, of course, believe that in this Theravada tradition culminating in arhatship. And so the technique, as you very well know, is focusing on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. They become subtler and subtler and subtler, and you simply continue following these increasingly subtle sensations of the breath. But then again, now something pops up that again you don't find in the, in the Buddhist teachings, in the Pali Canon, but to which I also have a lot of confidence because it, it's, um, I think there's very strong reason to believe that what I'm about to share is, has, is experience that was again replicated over a thousand years. So in other words, twice as long as all of modern science. And that is, as, as while focusing on these sensations at the apertures of the nostrils, then spontaneously, and a mental image arises in that target area. So right in front of you, kind of in the area of the nose or in front of the nose. And an image will arise, and it's, not, and it's called the acquired sign, or it's called the learning sign. Again, purely a mental image. And, it, and you'll know that it's not simply some vagrant, kind of just an image, a thought, simply, simply some distraction. When this image comes in, especially when you're having a very good session, one you're very pleased with, that is, it's very calm, very quiet, clear, very focused, and then suddenly right there, right in your target area, comes some image. It could be simply a point of light, it could be a cluster of light, it could be like a garland of flowers. There's a variety there, there's not just one. But it's, so it's this acquired sign, I'll stick with that translation. You'll know it's the acquired sign when it comes in repeatedly, and in your very good sessions, it's right there, and it starts to really form or crystallize into one distinct shape. So it's not this one day and another and another and another, but actually becomes more homogenous and stable. And when that occurs, when you're quite confident, and it's good to be in dialogue with a qualified meditation teacher in this regard, then when it's really quite stable and persistent, comes again and again and again when you're having a very good session, unlike, let's say, sessions with a lot of coarse excitation when you're just having a lot of junk coming to mind, uh, then you disengage your attention from the tactile sensations of the breath and you switch over to the acquired sign. So now actually you've marginalized the sensations of the breath or even the flow of the breath. So that was your launching pad. The sensations of the breath are called the preliminary sign. Okay, that gets you, gets you going uh, and eases you into the practice. And then the acquired sign comes up. You focus on that and you continue focusing on that single-pointedly. 
Again, you didn't visualize it, and you're not visualizing it. Something comes up spontaneously. And then you continue with that right on through stages, let's say four, five, six, right through nine. You know, it could come up more or less stage three, four, five, something like that. But there's no guarantee. I know one person who was meditating uh, very diligently in mindfulness of breathing and achieved stage six, which is quite formidable. And the required sign never came up, just following subtler and subtler sensations. And there's having bliss arising all the time. So don't be waiting, don't be impatient for the acquired sign. You can go very, very far without it. And as we know from a sangha, with this full body awareness approach, which we'll go to tomorrow, that there's no reference there of acquired sign at all. It's just going to subtler and subtler sensations until you release them and you go right into the bhavanga, or the substrate consciousness. But following this Theravada track, you start with a preliminary sign, then the acquired sign, and then when you come to stage nine and you're crossing over, uh, to the forum realm, you're, you're really achieving shamatha, then it's as if that acquired sign breaks apart or it dissolves, and where it was, another sign appears, it's called a counterpart sign, and this is emerging from the forum realm, another entire dimension of reality. I mean, a totally different dimension of reality. Much subtler, and Buddha Gosa says, this counterpart sign is a hundred, nay, a thousand times more subtle than the acquired sign. So this point seems to get, again, lost awfully frequently in modern discussions of, of jhanas and, samap and anapanasati and so forth. It's crucially important, and it's right there in Buddhaghosa for everybody to read, but it's often ignored or thrown out. Um, but it's much more subtle than the acquired sign. It's not a brighter acquired sign. It's extremely subtle, and so subtle that unless you're very gifted, and some people are more, some people less, but, but you've already... You've achieved shamatha when that counterpart sign arises. If you're very gifted, then when it arises, you'll be able to stay with it and then fully stabilize your attention on that counterpart sign, which is so subtle. And if you stabilize on that, then you achieve the full jhana, the full jhana, uh, the first jhana. Okay? And that's really quite formidable. Then you're one of those people who can sit for 24 hours straight with your awareness totally drawn into the form realm, totally disengaged from the desire realm, that is, tactile sensations, visual, auditory, in just splendid samadhi, uh, and free of all the five obscurations and imbued with all the five jhana factors. I won't go into those right now, but 24 hours straight, and you can do that anytime you like. So that's the gold standard. That's the goal. I didn't make this up. This is Buddha Gosa. He didn't make it up. He's relying upon these incredible yogis during the kind of the golden era of the Theravada tradition. The golden era. This is when the greatest realizations, the greatest accomplishments were occurring quite frequently. So his, his chronicle, his, his, his compilation is just priceless, this path of, path of purification, and it's free online. So, but if you're not extraordinarily gifted, when that counterpart sign arises, it's so subtle you'll lose it. It'll, it'll kind of say peekaboo, it'll come, emerging out of the form realm, and then it'll be so subtle you won't be able to sustain your awareness of it, and then it withdraws right back into the form realm. And then, where are you left? Well, not that bad. You're left looking at right where it was, and right where it was is the substrate, a sheer vacuity. And what are you looking with? Your substrate consciousness, or the bhavanga. You're resting in the bhavanga. And then all that is appearing to you is the substrate, just a sheer blank vacuity. And Buddha Gosa says it's like a little baby who, when the counterpart sign first arises, you get it, and then it dissolves, and you, and you fall back. Like, he said, like a little toddler who gets up on his chubby little legs and goes, Ooh, and then boop, 
falls back on his bum. Boing, like that. And your bum is a bavanga, bavanga bum. Okay? Uh, and then, you've, well, you've achieved access to the first jhana or threshold of the first jhana, which means that you're free of those five obscurations, hallelujah, as long as you're in session. And the five jhana factors are good. They're simply not as robust, as strong as they are when you fully achieve the first jhana. Okay? So that's a little sneak preview. Uh, and that's the gold standard. That's Buddhaghosa, that's a Theravada tradition. It's a very powerful and experientially based interpretation of the Buddhist teachings, even though the Buddha never mentioned preliminary sign, acquired sign, counterpart sign, or did he mention focusing on the apertures of the nostrils. So this is where there's an interpretation that the Buddha didn't, didn't teach himself, but is a very powerful interpretation based upon a thousand years of experience. And that's just up to the time of Buddhaghosa. People didn't stop meditating then. So this has quite a, a royal lineage behind it. So last, last point before we jump in, uh, when you're focusing on the apertures, I keep on saying this, but it cannot be overstated, and that is make sure that your visual attention is totally disengaged from the meditative process. Do not focus your attention, your visual attention, there at the apertures of the nostrils. Don't scrunch down, don't contract any of the muscles around your eyes or your forehead or your temple. Keep it all like open, wide open spaces like a little baby, just like, like that. Innocent. And your eyes just, your eyes can be, again, it can be closed, hooded, or open. That's your choice. Again, it's not specified. Uh, but it's so important to keep the eyes soft, unfocused, no contraction around the eyes, no focusing of the eyes, everything open. Have I said that enough by now? <laughs> because what happens is people forget it. You know, I keep on saying it. They say, oh, why didn't you tell me? For the record, I am telling you right now. October 2nd, breaking news. Keep your eyes disengaged. Keep everything there open. And the reason for that is you're bringing your attention right into your face, right to the apertures of the nostrils, which are very close to the sinuses, close to the eyes, close to the forehead. You do that, there's bound to be some prana buildup. So one of those, and I've had this experience, is you're meditating correctly, uh, and then you're sitting there, and then your nose starts feeling like you're an elephant seal like this great big blob of a nose in front of your face, like, whoa. And then you open your eyes, and especially, yeah, and then you're kind of relieved, okay, my nose is not as big as that of an elephant seal. It's good, it seems to be, yeah, normal size. It just feels that way, like, blow, you know. Um, but no, your nose is not about to explode. There's just a lot of prana there, and that's what happens. Focus your attention in your body. Do so with a lot of concentration, and prana gathers where your attention is. And here your attention is right there in the middle of your face, right? So you're going to have a lot of sensation there. You're gonna, you, you may very well have a lot of prana building up there, a lot of sensation. If that's all it is, just a lot of sensation in the nostrils, no big deal, no problem. But if it starts to develop any kind of pressure around the eyes or the forehead, please back off. Back off. Just, you know, go, do full body awareness. Go into the infirmary. Go for a walk. Be mindful, open space mindfulness like that. Don't let the tension build up because it will become chronic. It can lead to really chronic headaches and ruin your day or your month or your year or your meditative practice altogether. It's happened. Right? And it's because you're focusing right there so close to the forehead and all of that. So keep it really soft. And just generally, you don't really want a whole lot of prana build up. So how do you do that? The soft touch. The soft touch. Don't, don't go in there like like with a jackhammer of attention, like, I will concentrate, you know? But just focus and just 
gently sustain, but with continuity, lightly, but with continuity, your attention upon the sensations there at the apertures of the nostrils, uh, really soft, just enough to remain engaged, but not so soft that you're floating, starting to space out. Just a soft touch. Okay? And then exactly where are you focusing? Uh, here, going back to Buddha Gosa, it depends on the shape of your nose. Right? And so if you have kind of a hook, no hook nose, hook nose, then where you will most distinctly experience the sensations of the actual breath itself, the air, right, is going to be on the, uh, just above your upper lip. You'll feel it most distinctly there. So focus there, just above the upper lip. But some people have noses that kind of like, hello. They're, kind of like, they're looking at you, you know, like, hello. <laughs> like, piggy, like Miss Piggy, you know. <laughs> Different shapes of nose. And they can all be quite cute, or at least interesting. <laughs> but if, if the nozzles are pointing out more, you know, out into air, then the flow of the air may more or less miss or just glance, graze the, upper, the area above the upper lip. In which case, if you're looking there, you're going to miss the target, you know, and the target's going right in, out into the air. But you don't have any nerve endings out there, so you can't pick it up. So then you just focus on the apertures themselves, just the last departure point when the air is leaving your body. What's the last point of contact? Well, not your upper lip so much, but just the apertures of the nostrils themselves. So just focus there. So you have to determine. And I won't ask you, because I don't want to embarrass you. Okay? Hola, so. Please find a comfortable position. You can do this in standing. You can do it walking. You can do it lying down and sitting. All four. Hola, so. So just to fill in one blank in terms of the, the straight Theravada approach. If you are not exceptionally gifted for dhyana practice, and the counterpart sign arises and dissolves right back into the form realm, and so you're resting there, uh, again, to give an outside interpretation, so not within the Theravada, then where you're resting right there is in that third mode of mindfulness. Now remember the sharp vajra of conscious awareness tantra. The third mode of mindfulness is, anybody recall? Absence of mindfulness, yeah. Because, again, it's, it's not that you're spaced out or you, you're demented or you're vegetative and so forth. It's just that you're not recalling anything at all from the past. Your, your coarse mind, your ordinary psyche, is disabled. I mean, you've, you've slipped into the subtler dimension of consciousness. And you're just present with this sheer vacuity. Right? So you're cognizant, but in terms of the functioning of mindfulness before, uh, it's not there. But you've not really slipped into anything either. It's really kind of like a holding pattern, like a holding pattern. And so at that point, if you're following now right back to straight Theravada, if you then are intent on achieving, fully achieving the first jhana, then you retrieve, you focus again and you retrieve that very, very subtle counterpart sign. And in a way, you kind of develop shamatha all over again on that, that you stabilize, you sustain that. And by sustaining your awareness on the counterpart sign, then you shift from the access to the, first, to the full realization or achievement of the first jhana. Now, there's an option which I've not seen in the Theravada tradition, but it's certainly obvious in the Dzogchen tradition. And that is once you're there, you know, and you can hang out there for four hours easily, just effortlessly, no, no dullness, no, no laxity, not even subtle laxity, not even the slightest trace of even subtle excitation. Uh, what you can do there, of course, I think you can kind of figure out already. What's your other option? If you're not going to go and look for that counterpart sign and try to retrieve it and focus on it, Haggai, what else could you do? Exactly right. You can invert your awareness right in upon itself, and then lo and behold, the fourth type of mindfulness, self-illuminating mindfulness, 
and then you're resting in the substrate consciousness itself, which is then very cool. All right, so now we'll just spend a very, just a few minutes, because this is not complicated at all. We'll move to the third out of nine stages preceding the actual achievement of shamatha. This is called resurgent attention, resurgent. Resurgent means coming back again and again and again. Uh, the Tibetan is lende jopa, and so the more literal translation would be patch-like. It's like if you tear your clothes and you patch it, uh, it's, you're, patching, you're patching up. It's patching up attention. But resurgent is a little bit more elegant term. But what it is, is like a person who has outgrown his clothes, okay? whether you're fat or skinny, but you just, out, maybe you just got taller like a kid. Uh, but you've outgrown your clothes, and so when you lean forward, you go rip, and you feel you know, like, you know, the armpit just ripped, and you say, oh, I have to patch that up. And then you're reaching out, for, and then rip, another armpit, oh, rip. And then you bend over, rip, and you find another you know, rip on your back and so forth. So most, most, most of the time it's fine, except that when you stretch, then it rips again, you have to patch it up. And so that's the metaphor. And so the good news here is that you're patching up your attention rather than just having a, pay, a, 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 having a pile of rags that is just having mostly chaos, right? And so we'll go right into it. What is achieved here is swift recovery of your distracted attention, which is now mostly on the object. So it's good to have a very clear understanding and recollection of what demarcates each of these stages. Again, not as goals. I cannot overemphasize that. Not as goals, but to know when, you're, when you've kind of shifted in the, into this domain, okay? into this domain of the third of, the third, uh, of these attentional states. Because in the second one, as you recall, well, the first one, you have almost no continuity at all. You're just pogo-sticking, dropping in on your meditative object. Mostly you're just all over the place, right? And that's normal, right? So we don't, don't call it bad. It's called normal, first stage. Second stage, you're mostly off the object. So don't call it bad. It's called second stage, which is good. Second stage, but you're able on occasion to maintain your attention for up to a minute or so without totally forgetting it. Third stage, now today's stage. You've been keeping up, I hope. Yesterday you were on stage two? So stage three, gung-ho, flex your muscles. Uh, only joking. Um, Third stage, you're actually in your 24-minute session, probably you probably have wanted to extend it by now because you, after 24 minutes, you say, why, what, why would I want to stop? This is kind of getting good. So you might want, by, by, by now, maybe it's a half an hour, maybe it's 40 minutes. Maybe not. You, know, you might really be going for quality over quantity, so maybe still 24 minutes. But the point is, whether it's 24 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever, that most of the time, you're on the object. Most of the time. And then you reach out and rip, okay? Most of the time, you're, but then you forget it, and you're gone for a few seconds. Maybe just a, couple, a cup, maybe just a couple of seconds. But then you patch it up. Your attention resurges, it comes back again. So that's a big demarcation. That's a big difference, okay? And, but now we have, as you recall, you achieve the first stage by the power of hearing and understanding the teaching. The second one by thinking. I gave two interpretations of that yesterday. And now the third one, you achieve the third, this third stage by the power of mindfulness. Mindfulness. But now we really must remember, again, going back to the definitions of mindfulness for the first 2,500 years, before it was reduced to bare attention in the last 50 years, uh, mindfulness has a primary connotation in all schools of Buddhism. Um, that is the term mindfulness in, I'm going to run through the list again, Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Mongolian, Japanese, and Chinese. In all of these languages, which have really absorbed Buddhism, so you have a whole Buddhist terminology, the term that we're translating as mindfulness has a primary connotation of recollection. 
So that's not just some school, that's all of Asia, right? Primary connotation of mindfulness is recalling, bearing in mind, not forgetting, not being distracted. Okay? Bear attention is fine, but that's not, it's never been the definition of mindfulness. It's one type of mindfulness. And so you achieve this by the power of mindfulness. Well, what kind of mindfulness? So again, bearing in mind, retention, bearing in mind. You're not forgetting the instructions. You're not forgetting the instructions, right, that you heard. Throughout the whole course of the, se of the session, you're not forgetting the instructions. There's one meaning of it. And the other meaning of it is you're not forgetting your meditative object. Now, the quality of attention to bring you to it is, in fact, bare attention. But that's not the most important thing. It's you're not forgetting your meditative object. So in the present moment, you're breathing in, breathing out. You're not forgetting the breath, which means you're not falling into coarse excitation where you've spun off to some other object. Right? So that's, how you, that's the power, the, me the, the mental faculty by which you achieve it's by developing, not only using, but developing and, how to say, strengthening your power of mindfulness. Now, what problems persist is one still forgets the object entirely for brief periods. So you're not free of course, course excitation. Okay, so there it is. So it's still broken up. Uh, and then, what's the attentional imbalance? The one that's highlighted is, as usual, course excitation. So we see this course excitation is the big number one, kind of public enemy number one for stages one, two, and three, okay? Now, you may, and they don't even mention laxity here. Laxity is a technical term, whereas dullness, th these are different words in Tibetan, jingwa is laxity, and that's a, that's a meditative term. That's, some, that's a problem meditators have. Where there's another term, mukpa, and that's dullness. So laxity and dullness appear among the five hindrances, or the five obscurations. It's a little cluster. Uh, laxity and dullness, they're together as one hindrance. Dullness is something we've all experienced whether we've ever meditated or not. And that we know that's like. The mind is just sluggish, heavy, dull, no explanation needed there. So dullness can certainly arise at any time, whether you're meditating or not, but on stages one, two, and three, there's no question, dullness can arise. And then you antidote that, you apply remedies as needed, and you know, I won't talk about those right now, I think you know them pretty much. Uh, but laxity, that term, that technical term, doesn't even come up here. The term that keeps on coming up is excitation, excitation, coarse excitation. And so it's not only for us modern people living in this helter-skelter world of modernity, but in India 2,500 years ago, in Tibet 800 years ago, coarse excitation. There's just the, the energy system is all stirred up, the prana system is stirred up, there's a lot of turbulence in the mind, and so therefore... Since the, 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 mental, the attentional imbalance that is highlighted for stages one, two, and three is simply coarse excitation, then what's your primary remedy in terms of the ones we've been practicing that I've been highlighting for the last four and a half weeks? What's your primary remedy when you see that your mind is really caught up in a lot of agitation, coarse excitation? Please tell me, what do you do? Oh, man, that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, Relaxation. Don't do the natural thing, and that is try harder, bear down, grip, get a grip, and tight, you know, everything like that. You, and the, the reason that's so seductive is it works. If I say, hey, concentrate, or I'm going to punish you, I'm going to give you, you know, some, what do they call it, demerits to the Gryffindors. You know, the Gryffindor people here, and the Slytherin, I'm going to give you more demerits if, you know, like that. You know, if you feel something really bad is going to happen if your attention wanders, like you're in really heavy rush, and tr rush hour traffic, stop and go, stop and go, and people changing lanes all over the place. You know that if, you're, if you let your mind wander, you won't like it. 
because you're gonna, your insurance premiums will go up. You might even really damage or harm yourself or other people. So then we know, okay, well, then I'll focus. So, okay, oh, oh man, these are really rude drivers. Oh, man, I've got to really focus. So it works. You really need to concentrate now because you don't want to crash. And maybe you see some really reckless drivers on the road. Oh, man, I have to be careful of those people. So you, you, you tighten up. And then you get home. Oh, man, how are you, sweetie? Oh, the rush hour killed me. It's wiped, wiped me out. I'm so stressed out. Right? So you can do it. You got home safe. So it, it got the job done. But a lot of wear and tear. And you cannot sustain that. Jet fighter pilots, when they've been doing that for five hours in the air, they're wiped out. They need like 24 hours of, of rest and relaxation. Or rest and recreation, whatever R&R stands for, I think I forgot. Recreation and rest, rest and recreation, I don't know. But in any case, they need to kick back, shoot some pool and drink beer. And they're just cool, chill for about 24 hours. And then they can get back into the cockpit. You know, in that really high intensity, high demand job. I spoke with a, an, Isra an, an Israeli jet fighter pilot who had been through multiple wars. He was about my age, so he had been through a lot. And he confirmed this, because he, he was really, he was one a grizzled warrior. He came to a, a retreat I led in uh, the Bahamas years ago. But he, he said, yeah, that's exactly right. You, you, you have to be absolutely on when you're in the cockpit. You can be flying at 800 miles an hour, Mach 1, who knows, and you're often flying close to the ground, and that's not even counting combat. You know? And you're flying a $30 million jet. They won't be happy if you crash it. And so when you get out, you're really wasted. So that's the problem with bearing down. It really does work, but you can't sustain it. And it's really doing a lot of damage. And now we're seeing fundamentally at its core, the meditative approach to developing attention is just, at the beginning, it's different. Now, number one, it's not ego-driven, and it has a, a, a gentle and benevolent motivation. But again, you all got it right. In response to course excitation, as we see us most explicitly in the Dzogchen tradition, when you see that your attention has been carried away, you've lost your mind, the first thing is loosen up. The question is not loosening up just to space out. You loosen up and then gently come back to the object. Relax, release, and then return. Right? So what does that imply then for the first three stages is big, powerful emphasis on relaxation because you've got big, powerful tendencies for course excitation which means then match it. Lots of relaxation. So whenever I'm meeting you, you, you folks on one-on-one, -on -one, and you tell me, sometimes the first thing coming out of your mouth is, Paul, this week I've been feeling much more relaxed. And I just relax. I say, okay, everything is going to be fine. T and now tell me what happened. Yeah, whatever questions you have. But I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, all well. Because you know? hardly ever, hardly ever, oh, I really relaxed this week. And then I became so spaced out and dull and bored. It could happen. It can happen. I mean, that's, that's where you fall off the deep end into relaxation that goes into stupor. But not often. People didn't travel all the way here to rest in stupor. You already know that. And so if there's that relaxation and you're not losing your clarity, you're set. Mission accomplished. You're going to make it. You're going to make it right through stages one, two, and three. It's good. So there we go. So there we are, the course excitation, the type of mental engagement. It used to be focused for stages one and two, focus, focus. Now the quality of mental engagement is interrupted. Now you can say, wait a minute, it wasn't interrupted before? So no, you're mostly off the top. Your distraction was interrupted by an occasional meditation. <laughs> like the rumination was getting kind of annoyed with you. Why do, why do you keep on dropping into meditation? I thought I was in charge here. Right. So they don't call that interruption. You're looking at which is most. 
And if you're mostly distracted, then you say your distraction is occasionally interrupted by meditation. And now you say your meditation is occasionally interrupted by distraction, by course excitation. So that's good. So now finally we've got to the interrupted level. This point, okay, the quality of movement. I don't need to use a lot of words, but the words are important because you'll have these notes. I'll give them to you on Sunday. The quality of experience. The quality of experience. Well, you'll recall before it was movement, movement. Well, it's movement still. The sense of just movement as you're trying to focus your attention. But you say, well, it sounds like there's no progress there. Movement stage one, movement stage two, movement stage three. Isn't anything happening? Isn't the quality of experience changing at all? And now this is where it really needs commentary. Because I put together these notes so I know where they came from. And these, the last two points, the quality of experience and the metaphors used. These are coming from Lama Mipam Rinpoche, a prodigious scholar and contemplative from the Nyingma tradition of the 19th century. And it was specifically re relating to the classic Dzogchen approach to shamatha, namely settling the mind in its natural state. So these two, quality of experience and, and the metaphors, are specifically for people doing that practice and not other practices. So now you understand. If you're doing that practice of settling the mind in its natural state, then how much effort are you give, get, giving to really getting the, the, the thoughts to calm down and memories to calm down, and images to calm down. How much effort are you getting to get the whole thing to shut up and be quiet and all that mental activity to subside? How much effort are you giving? Emery? None is the, the only correct answer. Yeah, none. Because if you are, then you're expressing aversion, and that's the kind of grasping, which means you're not settling the mind in its natural state. You're suppressing the mind. Now, then we can say, well, if none, I mean, you're just hanging out there daydreaming along and then calling that meditation, and Emery knows that's not the case. No, but I think you do as well. You're allowing the free flow, the free flow, opening the Pandora's box, allowing the free flow of thoughts, images, mental afflictions, hatred, greed, lust, everything, wah, yuck, right? And virtue and blessing and compassion and faith and all kinds of good stuff. But it's, kind of, it's Pandora's box. You've opened it up without censorship, without restraint, without control, right? In terms of what is arising to you in the space of the mind. And then why is this not just simply daydreaming? You know the answer to that. Because you're attending to it without distraction. You're not being carried away. You're attending to it without grasping. You're not identifying with. But like space, you're just letting all these mental events arise. And you're just resting your awareness as still as space and letting them untangle themselves in their own way, including the upheavals of emotions, memories, and so forth and so on. And you just let, you just kind of like, don't do this, but as if in the back of your mind was the Beatles refrain, let it be, let it be, just let it be. And, but you can't, they keep on saying, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. It means for the whole session, let it be. You know? And then let it, let it release themselves. And then your mind really settles in its natural state. And you are watching your mind. You're on a path of self-knowledge. Oh, that's what was in there while I was so busy and attending to other things. Wow, interesting. Pretty creepy, but interesting. So movement. The movement is unabated. There's no indication by the, the one-liner, the bullet item, that there's any less movement on stage three than there was stage one. But that's fine. That's the whole idea. You're letting it flow, and eruptions are coming up. All kinds of things are coming up. But is there, is there progress? Is there development? Yeah. You're not carried away so often. You're, that is, you're recognizing more and more clearly the distinction between the movement and the stillness of your own awareness, 
the, the stillness of the space of the mind versus the movements of the mind. And then more and more you're experiencing the simultaneous awareness of stillness and motion. You're making real progress there, but it's entirely on the subjective side and not getting the contents of the mind to subside. And so likewise, and now no surprise, in terms of the metaphor, you recall that the metaphor for the first stage was a cascading waterfall. So you understand? Chaotic, lots and lots of volume. Stage two, it was cascading waterfall. And now any guesses what the metaphor will be for stage three? Jude, take a wild guess. You will not be punished if you get the wrong answer. Cascading waterfall. Five marks for Gryffindor. Yes, exactly. It's the same thing, just more of the same. It's not subsiding, and you didn't want it to subside. If it subsides, that's fine. But in fact, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure there, so a lot of stuff coming up. So you just let it be. Let it be. Now, if you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, awareness of awareness, merging the mind with space, then on stages two, three, etc., you will see less movement because you are preferring you are releasing. You're releasing. Especially in one of the two ways. I mean, I'm not going to go into you've, you've already heard the teachings. But in the practice where you are, in the shamatha without a sign and merging mind with space, in the practice where you are, you've adopted the interpretation of deliberately releasing whatever comes up. Remember like the duel, the swordsman and the archer, where as soon as they come up, you just flick them away. Very easy. Dismiss them. Then, of course, on stage two, you already have less movement. And it will not be such a cascading waterfall. Stage three, it will be less movement, less of a cascading waterfall. And so that's going to be different. Right? Because you do have a preference. You are gently, calmly, releasing whatever comes up. Okay? Claro? Muy claro? Muchas gracias. See you later. <laughs>